basically, if you want to reduce materialism, you need to make sure that uh, those human connections and those other values, such as generosity, uh, that they are amplified. And so I think what would work best if, well, at least in young kids, to, to invest in their uh, self-esteem a little bit as well, also for adolescents, but I think also teaching young people to be grateful, to be grateful ourselves as well for all the things that we have, and really just focus on making those connections. And the tricky thing is that sometimes possessions enable these connections, but I think if we've more focused on what's intrinsic to us, what makes us happy outside of possessions, that then basically the emphasis will shift. Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. In today's episode, we're going to bring our series on the intersection of children and money to a conclusion. We started out so long ago by talking with New York Times money columnist Ron Lieber about his book, The Opposite of Spoiled. More recently, we heard from Dr. Brad Klontz about how we pass on money scripts to our children. And then we talked with Dr. Alison Pugh about the meaning children make out of the messages they receive about material goods. And then Dr. Esther Rosendahl on how children's brains process advertising. And in between, we looked at what research there is on how to set up a playroom, which has, of course, many links with the items that we buy and use. And so finally, Finally, we're here today with Dr. Susanna Opre to bring the discussion up to a level that kind of draws all this together as we try and understand what materialism is and how we pass it on to our children and what we can do if we don't want our children to be very materialistic. Dr. Opre is Senior Assistant Professor of Quantitative Methods in the Department of Media and Communication at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Her research focuses on the effect of advertising and commercial media on youth, materialism, and well-being. Welcome, Dr. Opre. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I'm wondering if we can start with something that seems as though it should be kind of simple, and then it turned out that it wasn't. Can you define materialism for us? Because as I was reading through the literature, I found at least six different definitions of it. Yeah, there are indeed many definitions. Uh, Luckily, though, some scholars have already tried to make sense of all those different definitions. Mm -hmm. And so I myself always go by the work of uh, Richens and Dawson. And they say that um, materialism is basically three things. So first, it's finding possessions important and just wanting to collect as many possessions as you can. That's the first thing. Uh, Then the second thing is that you actually think that these possessions will make you happier, uh, not only in the short term, but also in the long run. And so that's basically one of the motivators for actually collecting possessions. And then the third one has to do more with uh, impression management, so to say. Mm. Uh, So it's uh, that you want to have possessions uh, for adults to basically impress all the others around you. So think of having a big house, having a big car. And for children, uh, it's that. So getting items that will make you popular among your peers, uh, but also just the belonging and fitting in, which I know you talked about earlier in the podcast uh, series as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's important for children as well. Yeah, yeah, that definitely came out in our episode with Dr. Pugh. So um, so I'm glad that you are using one of the definitions that I had found instead of springing a new one on me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm curious as to how you landed on that one instead of uh, some of the others that, I mean, one of them says that materialism is a personality trait. Other people think it's a feature of people's identities or a set of attitudes about money and wealth. What is it about this particular definition that speaks to you more than some of the others? Well, I think it also 
captures the first two that you're referring to. So mm -hmm. when we talk about it as a personality trait, I do think materialism is something uh, that's inherent to our characters and all of us are materialistic to some extent or another. However, in that research, it's often combined with other character traits. Uh, so they talk that materialism is paired with uh, possessiveness, for instance, uh, non-generosity, uh, envy. And I don't think all materialistic kids or people actually have these personality traits. Mm -hmm. But we use possessions as part of our identity. So I do think that part is true especially in the consumer culture that we have today. Basically, anything you own is a choice. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, like I, to my students, I always compare it to buying a car. A couple of decades ago, there was one car that you could buy, like the T4. It was the only one made available <laughs> and it had just one color and that was it. Whereas if you go buy a car today, there's so many different each brand has so many different models in so many different colors or color combinations uh, that whatever you choose then becomes a signaling of your identity, so to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's particularly, it's interesting that you brought up the, ex the example of cars. I was just talking about this the other day, about how uh, so many cars are essentially the same car with <laughs> the same chassis, the same engine, <laughs> with a different, you know, uh, wrapper on the outside <laughs> that's yeah, designed yeah. to appeal to some particular aspect of our taste. So, <laughs> True. yeah. And so I'm always uh, trying to look back to previous episodes and we did one recently on the topic of patriarchy and I was really interested to draw a connection between some research on that and uh, something that I pulled out of the literature on materialism because one of the authors I was reading had argued that materialism and consumerism have feminizing effects on men and I'm going to quote this by setting up a narrative linking identity, sorry, linking masculinity, rebellion and integrity on one side and femininity, conformity, domestication and commercialization on the other. Production is active while consumption is passive. The consumer is deceived by advertising into purchasing things she doesn't really need. And this femininity is contagious. So men might also find themselves subject to the hypnoidal trance. I mean, <laughs> what do you make of that? It, it's, I am trying to square that with the research that says that men are actually slightly more materialistic than women, I think. They are, yeah, yeah. To me, it was a very interesting point of view, actually a new one uh, for me. So mm. if I actually uh, look at the literature, so Tim Kasser, for instance, has a uh, yeah has has worked on the topic of materialism for many years as well, and uh, he also studies uh, he links it to capitalism basically, and he I believe last year also released a book called Hypercapitalism, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. It's actually a comic book telling you everything about yeah. materialism or what you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> but what he also explains there is that he links it to capitalism, but he's saying so materialism often has is occurring in capitalist societies where there's also a huge emphasis on uh, succession uh, of or success ambition uh, status wealth and that's actually if we look at intercultural research uh, those kind of societies are actually classified as being more masculine yeah so there sure. is more emphasis on being the best so to say than taking care of each other mm -hmm. uh, so we also see that in countries where actually there is less capitalism and less materialism that there is for instance yeah more emphasis on values such as harmony and equality social justice so this part about art <laughs> how materialism could be, uh, yeah, how did you call it, feminizing? Right, yes. <laughs> yeah, to, to me, that's uh, an interesting point of view that I will definitely explore further, but that I wasn't familiar with. Yeah, prior. it almost seems as though the men are looking to the... Or, I mean, it's sort of a cycle. The men are advertising to the women because, of course, advertising agencies are mostly run by men and are uh, predominantly populated by men. And so they're creating these advertisements for women and saying, well, you're listening to this stuff and, and you're being hypnotized by it and you're feminizing us. <laughs> there, there was some kind of strange circular logic in it to me as well. So, OK, that brings us to the question of why do we care about materialism? Why does it matter? So let's start with how materialism is linked to well-being. What, what do you see there? Yeah, so there's actually an interesting link. So uh, in my research, I always distinguish well-being from life satisfaction, which are two different things. Okay. So well-being are basically all the conditions that need to be met in order for you to become a happy individual. And what we see in research among adults is that adults who are 
more materialistic. They become less satisfied with their lives over time. And it also works the other way around. So if as an adult uh, you are less satisfied, then you also grow to become more materialistic as a sort of coping mechanism. Uh, and we observe this coping mechanism in children as well. So we see that if children are unhappy, that then uh, they are more materialistic. They're also more susceptible to the effects of advertising, but not the other way around. So if they're materialistic as kids, they will not become uh, less satisfied. Mm, okay. All right. So let, let's dig into that a little bit then. What specifically do you find, I guess, I, I'm not sure if this research has been done on children, but are there links between, I guess it's well-being as you're defining it, rather than life satisfaction and materialism? Do we see a lot of negative impacts there or are there some positive ones as well, maybe? Well, actually, that's still partly to be explored. Okay. So we aren't too sure yet how that works together. Okay. But we do see that that link between materialism and life satisfaction. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking about research on things like depression and anxiety and narcissism mm-hmm. and substance abuse. Well, there um, is a lot of research on that. Yeah. Okay. So that's then a very specific form of people's mental well-being, basically. Right. Yeah. Uh, that if you look at research on self-esteem, for instance, then we do see that youth uh, or adults with less uh, self-esteem they become more materialistic as well. Uh And uh, similarly, in my own research, I also found that children who experience a big life event, uh, so this could be moving to a new town, but it could also be experiencing someone getting sick uh, in their families, for instance, uh, that then they become more materialistic as well. So for kids, uh, somehow these possessions seem like a way out in order to feel better. Mm, yeah. And I'm just thinking about the literature on divorce on that as well, because I know there's research on divorce and materialism, and I'm not sure the extent to which the parents drive this by uh, seeing that the child's unhappy and buying them things as a tool to kind of express, you know, I still love you, even though we're not together. And uh, do you think that there is an element of the parents are driving this or is, does it come from the children who are looking to possessions where they feel as though something's missing from other aspects? of their life or is it kind of a a circular process again there yeah well so one of those life events is also a divorce Mm -hmm. so we also included that in our research and then again we did see that the children whose parents were divorced that indeed they uh, would become more materialistic as well Part of it is compensation, I think, also because if you're spending less time with your kids, uh, sometimes that is the outcome of divorce as well. You may want to compensate a little bit for your absence. And to a certain extent, like I wouldn't say that that's all bad. I just think you need to be aware of the kind of message that you're uh, giving out and also the kind of message uh, you give out while doing so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it is okay, for instance, if you want to create a new bedroom uh, in your house, if you want your kid to feel safe and secure in a new home, then yeah, I don't see the harm in getting them new possessions. Okay. And then sort of heading back up to the broader theme, I was really interested to see that materialistic values are associated with making more antisocial and self-centered decisions. And some people had done some fascinating studies on things like changing price tags on merchandise. I think this was a survey where they asked people if they'd ever done this or knowingly used an expired coupon, which gosh, I've done. (laughs) 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 behaving in less pro-social and more selfish ways. What links do you see there? Yeah, with that type of research, I always wonder myself, is it then materialism or maybe a personality trait that is related uh, to materialism? Uh, So in my own research with then adolescents, we saw that adolescent uh, kids who are more materialistic uh, tend to be more narcissistic and entitled as well. Mm. And so especially imagine that something like entitlement would perhaps make a bigger difference there than materialism. So if you change the price tag, if you want to get it cheaper, it's probably because you feel like that's the price that's right for you or Uh, (laughs) that you're sort of justifying it maybe in that way. So I think it has to do with something linked to materialism rather than materialism itself. Yeah. And of course, that gets to the point of correlation rather than causation, doesn't it? 
and I, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the research shows that, and, and I had written down materialistic values are associated with making more of these decisions. And because if we, if we just sort of do a survey, we're finding that these two things vary together, but we can't say that it's the materialism that's causing the, uh, unethical behavior. And it could in fact be other things that the researchers weren't even looking at. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's sort of a fair bit on the, the personal stuff. And of course, there are other reasons as well related to the environment and, <laughs> and the amount of waste that it produces, uh, which we don't ever really see. You know, when we throw our device away or whatever our thing is away, we're throwing away a small fraction of the complete amount of waste that was created in the life cycle of the product. What do you see about how people who have materialistic values view nature and, and see these, uh, these circumstances? Yeah, well, I think this partly has to do with uh, consumer culture as well. So in a sense that if we look at the way our countries have changed over the year and also how production processes have changed. Uh, so I myself, for instance, I grew up in a small town and we had a big agricultural sector and there was a, a lot of these greenhouses as well. Uh, so there was actually produce being grown nearby. Uh, but if you go there now, it's all suburbs, like all these <laughs> fields are gone. And so uh, even though we grew up like seeing what's happening, really knowing where our produce come from, I can imagine the same like if you grow up near farms, if you see animals being raised, uh, then the connection to nature is, of course, closer than if you live somewhere uh, where you never observe this. Mm -hmm. And a big tricky thing with the waste is, is that, of course, we ourselves, we create waste, unfortunately, in our homes. Not all foods get eaten or indeed uh, we get rid of uh, machines as well that maybe could have still been fixed, but it's easier just to replace it with something new that will work immediately, mm -hmm. so to say. On the one hand, it's actually also part of the production process. So as I said, we're further away from it. But with all the produce, for instance, we don't see the process before the store. And so we're creating waste ourselves, but actually the industry is also creating waste. So we have certain standards for what uh, fruit and vegetables should look like, for instance. Mm -hmm. And anything that doesn't meet the criterion will be cut uh, from the process and will not make it to the stores. And so there's also uh, waste in different parts of the process uh, that I think can be handled as well. So that's one thing. And then on a more individual level, yeah, it, it's tricky that we yeah, tend to replace things sooner than we used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had read that individuals who are focused on more materialistic values really have more of a negative attitude towards the environment. Do you think that it's just that they don't think about it as much or they think about it and they don't care? Or what do you think is driving that? Maybe a little bit convenience mm -hmm. um, that they prioritize their own goals over the common ones. So we do see that in, in materialistic societies, there's more an emphasis on the individual. And so you want to drive your car and not think about the emissions <laughs> that it's causing mm -hmm. or you want to book that flight or so that could be one thing. I think it's more a societal problem than an individual problem, though. OK. All right. And so... Children, when they're born, tend not to have so much desire for products, I think. <laughs> so I'm curious about how this develops. You know, how does children's understanding of these issues uh, shift as, as they get older? Yeah. Well, the good thing is, is also with the environmental issues, like you can still teach children a lot of things. Oh, so yeah. If we just teach the current generation well, then maybe they'll behave better than we are doing mm -hmm. right now. Kids do, yeah, of course, when they're very little, like they can even be entertained with very little, doesn't have to be the most impressive toy ever, as long as they can play with it, touch it, maybe smell it, or like then, then it's already fine. But the more, yeah, the older they become, the more toys they get, of course. And there's also this part where they, at one point, start to realize all the things that they can ask for their birthday. So the first <laughs> birthday, like they're completely unaware that it even is their birthday. But then the older they get, it really becomes this big event that they're uh, living towards uh, the same thing <laughs> with Christmas. Like it suddenly becomes this big thing. Gosh, do you uh, have young children by any chance? <laughs> Uh, no, I do have two small nieces. So. <laughs> it sounds as though you've lived this many times. 
So I, I see it a little bit through my own family. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. And they start to recognize brands as well, right? Yeah, very early. So uh, most four-year-olds would already know McDonald's, for instance. They just see, need to see the, the big yellow M and they uh-huh. already know what time it is, basically. <laughs> what time it is. <laughs> Yeah, my daughter's actually confused between McDonald's and In-N-Out, I think, because they're both yellow, which was possibly a tactical <laughs> mistake on somebody's part. But yeah, she hasn't quite got the shape yet, but she she knows they're yellow. And so this is sort of very young children. And then over time, it moves from recognition of brands to the, the realization that some brands are cool and other brands are not cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how does that happen? Yeah, that does happen like somewhere during primary school. So I I think part of it is already in younger children as well. So I must say my niece is four years old and she already has clear preferences as well, which are also clearly dictated by the kind of shows she's watching on television. And uh, so here, Paw Patrol, for instance, is a big thing. And so then she wants all things from Paw Patrol. And before this, it was Frozen. (laughs) There is this, and and all the kids around her are having the same things as well. So we we do already see that even at that age, uh, like they have common preferences, Mm -hmm. so to say, but it's more driven still by with what they find fun themselves. Mm -hmm. And it isn't until later. So actually in the literature, it's often said around the age of eight, uh, where children start to realize that brands or products cannot only have a function for them personally, but that they can also signal something out to the others. And so this sense of belonging as well, that you need to have these uh, things in order to fit in, uh, starts to develop around that time of age. Mm -hmm. And gosh, where did that come from? I mean, I'm just thinking back 100 years, 200 years. Where did this idea that you have to have a certain logo on your shoes to fit in come from? (laughs) Yeah. Good question. Maybe a little bit consumer culture as well, that it's become more important because you have, again, this potential to differentiation uh, so that it is easier to recognize an in-group and an out-group and that you want to be part of that in-group, that because brands have become more important over time, that probably is the same for kids, that then it became a bigger thing for them as well. Uh, So as products get more differentiated, they become more used as a signal of of who's in and who's out. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so we spent a whole episode talking about advertising and we talked a little bit about brands here, but these values are related to materialism are also passed on from parents to children as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So actually, I think that's good news, especially if you listen to the previous podcast, that you as a parent still have the biggest influence. So yes, the media has an influence as well. Advertising has an influence. Uh, But if, and and this is something that I would do in my studies as well. So if I look at uh, what predicts children's materialism, If possible, if I have access to the parents, I can also ask them for their level of materialism. And we see that that's the biggest predictor. So it's really the kind of values you have yourself. That's what you're passing on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you're worrying (laughs) that your children might become too materialistic, then, then try to think of, yeah, really the kind of values that you find important that are less focused on possessions or or products or brands and try to reinforce those more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it almost, I I was actually doing some thinking on this over the weekend as well and how values are defined and even the way that somebody who says that they're family oriented is, is one of their primary values. And that can be expressed in different ways too. I mean, what we could do is if, if we're saying family is most important to me, that could mean I'm going to spend as much time as possible with my kids, or it could also mean I'm going to give my children every advantage that I can. And that means I need to work really hard and I'm going to buy them a lot of stuff and make sure they get into the best schools and and so on. So even though we might say family is our most important value, there are so many different ways that that can actually be expressed in the children's experience of it that could go more or less materialistic. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think there's also been links to uh, parenting styles as well, isn't there? Wasn't there some research about mothers who were cold and controlling and children focusing on sort of attaining a sense of security through external sources like financial success? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are several studies similar to that one out there. And I think what mainly we need to take from these studies, because they're awfully specific, but that uh, basically children thrive best under a nurturing environment. They Mm -hmm. do want to experience the warmth. And uh, that's also way more predictive of their life satisfaction uh, than materialism is. So the fact that we did not find this effect of materialism on children's life satisfaction is also, we've explained that by the fact that a lot of children, thankfully, have a buffer. Basically, they are from a nice families. They have a warm home to go to. And that, in the end, is what determines their happiness most. Okay. All right. That's really helpful. And then uh, just to dig a little further into a couple of things related to that, there was uh, a study that looked at providing conditional and unconditional material rewards when the children were young. And so this is the idea of, you know, if if you do this, you can have a candy or uh, also using them as punishments. If you don't do this, I'm going to take your toy away. Tended to value goods as an indicator of success when they were adults. Although again, this is a correlational result only not, we can't say that one causes the other. Um, But that has a lot of links to work that we've looked at on rewards and whether rewards are effective at motivating people. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and that, yes, they can indeed be very effective for changing short-term behavior, but even beyond the idea of changing short-term behavior, it seems as though they have much broader reaching implications <laughs> than we might yeah. ever have yeah. thought. <laughs> yeah, I must say an, an issue with that kind of research, even though I think there is some merit to it, but I think we should be careful interpreting uh, retrospective research. So if we ask adults today what they remember about their childhoods, mm. because if you are a materialistic as an adult, then if you think about your past, then you're probably more primed to think about possessions as well and the things you did or didn't have when growing up. Hmm. Uh, whereas if you're less focused on possessions, then you're less likely to call those out first. So that could be something that really people reflect on their lives based on the values they have today. But then still, yeah, we do see that possessions are used as rewards. We also see this with good report cards, for instance, that you get a little bit of money from your grandparents or, and again, like it's the same with materialism itself. I think like we're all materialistic to some extent and it's not necessarily bad because it does make us thrive for certain goals and trying to set and reach them. And so I also think it's okay to give little rewards every now and then to say that you're proud as long as it's kept within certain limits (laughs) (laughs) and that you're really praising the child for instance for their perseverance and that you're really labeling the positive aspect that you want to reward uh, versus just giving something so really again the message and taking things away is always tricky because that's what we see also in research when it comes to children and media As soon as you're saying that they cannot watch something, it becomes this forbidden fruit, which they then become obsessed with. And so that's the same if you take one of their favorite toys away or their video console or like, then they will get obsessed with that because that's on their mind. That's the thing that they want to get back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that also fits so well with the research on children's eating habits and that if you make vegetables into what researchers call sort of a gateway food to getting the food that they really want, like a dessert, then it doesn't make them like vegetables anymore and it just makes them want the dessert more. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is probably off the opposite of what the parent was trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Even though if you get them to eat the vegetables often enough, uh, they will start to like some of them. <laughs> yes, potentially. Uh, <laughs> and it's that if you can get them to eat them often enough part, that's the hard yeah, part, yeah, isn't it, yeah. when they don't like them? Yeah. And you had also pointed out some research to me on parents who allow children a say in family purchase decisions. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it's uh, got to do basically... I think Esther, uh, in her uh, talk uh, with you on the way that children deal with advertising and that your parents, as a parent, you can influence that as well by the kind of conversations you have, mm-hmm. uh, that she also gave the example of a teacher, that if you as a teacher just say, don't listen to advertising because it's bad for this and this and that reason, uh, the children don't really think beyond that. And so we see the same thing when it comes to uh, consumer related conversations. That is, if parents just simply say, like, for instance, when they're out shopping or uh, when their child wants something like, no, because I know best or we're going to buy this for this and that reason. And always just making the decision by themselves. Then the children don't really learn 
uh, to reflect on consumer-related matters either. Uh, whereas if you have a conversation with them, uh, so if you discuss certain family purchases, I must say some findings in the literature are ridiculous. So there is parents who will consult their children on what kind of car to buy. Uh, that sort of thing to me seems a little bit far-fetched. Uh, but you can imagine that, for instance, when it comes to cereals, for instance, as a parent, you would consult with your child because if you buy the wrong brand, they're not going to eat it. <laughs> and then you're in trouble. <laughs> so, uh, and that doesn't always mean like sometimes you need to restrict the choice options mm -hmm. so that you're not saying you can choose between anything, but just like, which one do you prefer, this one or that one? And basically they're learning then to reflect on the qualities of both uh, products, but also to develop their own sense of agency. Because that's the tricky thing as a parent, if you're being strict and saying we're doing it my way, uh, then children start to look for decision makers outside of themselves. So they are also parents with that sort of parenting style run the risk that their children, once they start stop listening to them as teenagers, for instance, that they then turn to their friends and want to find their opinion on mm -hmm. anything. Whereas you really want your child to be able to yeah, gain autonomy and make decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that segues nicely into the contribution that peers make to children's materialism then. And I think we had seen in our interview with Dr. Pugh that peers are uh, quite influential over children's sort of view of brands and the way that they can consume brands. How do you see the link here between uh, the contribution that peers make specifically to children's materialism? Yeah. So the peers actually have an influence in two different ways. So we have something that we call uh, informational peer pressure, where children will actually uh, sort of talk with their friends about their preferences, not only their own, but also wanting to find out uh, what the other uh, child likes and for what reason. And so to sort of get an idea about anything that's out there and basically just collect different opinions. Uh, but then they can sort of uh, use that information in two ways. So there will be kids who sort of take that in, but don't follow it to a T, <laughs> other people, <laughs> other children's preferences. Uh, but there's also children who are more susceptible to something we call uh, normative peer pressure. And so that's when you're not only using this information to determine your own likes and dislikes, but where you're actually copying the other's uh, behavior. And that's, of course, especially when it comes to materialism, that's the thing where you get into this. I want to have this particular toy because all the other kids in my class have it as well. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I saw one study in a, where children in an experimental group were more likely to choose a playmate who had a new toy that they'd seen advertised. <laughs> So it seems as though there's a big sort of curiosity, but also coolness factor involved there. Yeah, a little bit of both, I would say. I, okay. I think the curiosity factor is also a big thing, uh, which we also now see online. So you have these uh, channels where really children are unboxing toys and other children love watching these even though they cannot play with the toys themselves because they're just watching a video. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they are still curious to the toys and what they can do. And uh, so, yes, this other kid might be cool for having this cool toy. But then I think it would depend on whether the kid actually likes the toy themselves, mm. uh, if they would want to have it, yes or no. Mm -hmm. So do you think parents should cave in if they feel, you know, they don't really want to buy a toy for their child, but the child really wants it because they really want to fit in in school. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think you should always check to which extent the story is accurate. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> sometimes kids can also say, but everyone has it and it's actually not true. Right. So they are, especially the older they get, the more aware they are of what kind of arguments work and don't work. Mm -hmm. And this one is one that typically works well. So if you're yeah. saying like, I won't fit in otherwise, then of course, no parent will want their child to be the misfit in class and they, they all want them to have friends. And so it's a compelling argument. <laughs> Yeah, it's so check the story, but also think of, yeah, again, what it is that they're asking for. And also if this is a, a product that you would actually be comfortable providing uh, yourself as well. So sometimes uh, these the things they can ask for are very small things. Uh, for instance, here in the Netherlands, at one point, 
there was this craze about in certain type of pen sets, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was really just pens that they could draw and write with, and, and that's it. Uh, which is, of course, even though they are more expensive than the non-branded ones, but which is different than asking uh, for a PlayStation, for mm-hmm. instance, yeah. because that's way more expensive. So I think also within, as a parent, you should also determine for yourself sort of what kind of praises you want to yeah go by if you think okay so this is justified yes or no and sometimes you can also just make children wait so you can say okay you can have that playstation if you can afford it but you have to wait for it until your birthday or until christmas like ask it uh, for santa and uh to actually at least teach them that they cannot have everything right there and then mm-hmm. yeah Okay. And so I want to look a little more at advertising. And I know that you're familiar with Dr. Esther Rosendahl's work. And I think you actually were colleagues together. Is that right? Yes. And we actually also uh, did research together as well. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So we also have a, a bit of a basic understanding that she's walked us through uh, about how advertising kind of shapes the way children think about products. And so you looked, you did a study looking at whether and how advertising exposure leads to materialism. So can you tell us what you found there, please? Yeah, so what we actually see with uh, advertising exposure and materialism is that the thing advertising does first and foremost, that's why it's being created, is that it actually makes children long for the products they see in these advertisements. So they are very flashy, uh, like we often see in advertisements, and I think Esther actually mentioned this as well, so how you uh, actually sell a toy, it's actually by showing that that cool kid has the toy and then all the other kids around him, (laughs) so that if you get that toy, you will actually be the one who is the one everyone wants to play with, for instance. So, So advertising in that sense often uses certain techniques to draw, get children's attention, but also to draw them in. Uh, There's also lots of songs, for instance. So your children may have recalled some songs from advertising where you thought like, oh, please don't sing it again. (laughs) (laughs) So it is very like, yes, advertisers are successful in getting brand names and branded products into children's minds and to actually sell them. And so this is what we see is that children who are exposed to a lot of advertising, or at least the more they are exposed to advertising, the more they will actually long for heavily advertised products. Okay. And then uh, that sort of transcends beyond that at some stage, because then they're thinking of all these things that they've seen in the advertisements. But of course, life is not just all advertising. They do play with other kids. They also see what kind of toys and brands they have. And then they sort of start to, as soon as they start longing for possessions, they will gradually also expand their scope of the kind of possessions they want, which goes beyond the ones that they see in advertising. Mm, Okay. The advertising that gets them started on the brands (laughs) and possessions, but then it it moves uh, bigger than that. Okay. And just to be clear here, this was a causal result that you found, right? This was not a correlation where two things are linked. This was a causal yeah, result. This yeah. was a causal result. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so you were looking at eight to 11 year old children. Do you think the same holds true for younger children? Yeah. So I've actually, uh, we've also done a study with uh, six to eight year olds okay. to see if uh, their materialism and advertising exposure were related as well. And then uh, we did find that actually for the six to eight-year-olds, the effects of advertising isn't as strong yet. Okay. All right. Well, that's some consolation, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then I read a bunch of your <laughs> papers and uh, in preparation for this episode and was struck by some things that seemed to me to not quite fit together. And I was hoping to get your help sorting it out. So there was a paper in 2013, and I'm going to quote a sentence from it. Young children may not recognize product symbolism and are therefore unlikely to believe that products bring happiness and success. However, this does not mean that possessions can't take a central place in their lives. And then there was a later study where you were testing a scale that you developed to measure materialism in children. And it seemed like you were reaching the opposite conclusion You said our study showed that material possessions do not only take a central place in young children's lives, but are also associated with happiness and success. And then an even more recent paper, you found that advertising (laughs) exposure did not predict positive relationships with others, which included peers, actually. So what sense can we make of all of this, please? (laughs) Can we start with the first two? Can you recap it for me? 
Yes. So earliest one, not recognizing product symbolism, unlikely to believe that products bring happiness and success, but they can still take a central place in their lives. And then the second one, that material possessions do take a central place and are also associated with happiness and success. Yeah. So this was actually the reason to do the study among the six and the eight year olds. Mm, Okay. (laughs) Because if you look at the literature and and it's actually the same literature I quoted early on as well. So the idea is, is that children start to recognize product symbolism around the age of eight. And so that's when they realize that they can use possessions also to become happier in the long run and to belong and become more popular. But that was sort of the cutoff point that was used in the literature. And well, we've discussed it as well, that the media landscape has changed or society Mm. has changed. And so we thought, let's replicate previous research, do it among a slightly younger group to sort of see are indeed is this true is it that it's yeah that the product symbolism is only at the age of eight or is it also true that those younger kids don't only want to collect things because that's what actually this this finding is also partly on base that young children if they and Esther also talked about the freebies, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so here in our, our in the Netherlands, we also had a big grocery store who at Christmas time gave children the opportunity to collect houses for a small Christmas village. And so get them children, all. They, they just <laughs> yeah, but they just want as many as they can get. So they yes. don't necessarily care if they have every single unique individual one, mm-hmm. as long as they have many. <laughs> Whereas the older children. Of course, they want to have all those houses as well, but they also want all the additional unique ones. Mm. And so the idea was always that, okay, so young children want to collect stuff, but they don't necessarily think beyond that. And Uh. what our research has actually shown, and so we looked at how do you measure materialism among six to eight-year-olds and really just testing, like, do they have this notion of that products can bring happiness and that they can help you belong And actually, they showed signs of that. So that's how the two Mm. are conflicting, is that the old study didn't, then we didn't have these insights then, which we do have today, that we actually know that all three facets of materialism can be present in younger children as well. Okay, okay. And so just to draw this to a conclusion then, what do you think is the most important influence on children's development of materialism? Is it still parents after we've explored peers and advertising and everything else? I think so, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's some consolation then. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I would like to look a little bit about kind of what the next generation is going to be like as they grow up and what implications that has for our society. And, and I was seeing some dissonance in the literature because on one side, more than half of nine to 14 year olds agreed who were surveyed, when you grow up, the more money you have, the happier you are. And over 60% agree that the only kind of job I want when I grow up is one that gets me a lot of money. You know, the best and brightest of today's students today want to go into investment banking consulting where you can make the most money. (laughs) And yet we're also seeing these trends away from purchases of things and more towards renting and purchasing experiences. And so I'm trying to understand whether you think young people today are more materialistic than ever before or not. Yeah. So I think those are are two different questions. Okay. There is like very specific research which has been done at the University of Tilburg, which I think is amazing because they are the first one they have this big longitudinal data sets so they could actually because they had thousands of individuals in it between young ages up until all the way up until pensioners and so they were able to track these people over time and to actually see so what is predicting people's materialism in that point of time is it their age is it the sense of the times so also with uh, they for instance also part of their data set also covered the economic crisis so they really saw an, an increase in people's materialistic values because then well if you have nothing then you become even more obsessed with getting it all back mm. or whether it's a, a cohort effect so whether it's really that we are raised on different parenting styles for instance and it's a very complicated study but it does lead to very clear results. And what they have found is that, yes, younger people are more materialistic and that is simply due to their age. Okay. And why specifically their age? What about their age? 
So they still mainly look at, yeah, so 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 18 years and up. Okay. But we do see with uh, younger children, so there's also research uh, that has looked at basically what's going on between the ages of 9 to 17, I believe. And there we see also that the, actually it peaks with yeah, the change from middle childhood, so that's typically 8 to 12, to adolescence, so 12 and up, which has to do with the fact that there is a lot of, like uh, children, there's a lot changing in their lives. Mm. So at least in the Netherlands, and, and this differs per country, uh, but for instance, here at age 12, they make the transition from primary school to secondary school. And so they have to, they, they are losing all the, the kids they used to play with. They're entering a new school with all these kids in their classroom that they don't know yet. And so that's a, a part that makes them insecure. Will I be able to get new friends? And that's also when they sort of, yeah, again, seek this assurance or security in brands that as long as they have the right things, they might be more likely to fit in. So that's uh, partly what drives it. So it's transitions they experience. Uh, but of course, it's not only transitions in the type of high school, but also in their own uh, body. So we know that teenagers are very insecure because their bodies are changing. They have to get used to this. Uh, suddenly, the kind of relationships they have to their peers are changing as well. And so that's, it's a very insecure time. And yeah, then possessions can provide a sense of security. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just also thinking back to what you said about, you know, if you have nothing, then you will do what you can to get it all back. And of course, getting it back assumes you had it in the first place. And yeah. it reminds me of the links between materialism and poverty. And uh, teens living in poverty tend to be more materialistic than those from more affluent households. And I think some researchers have pointed out that maybe low self-esteem is a possible mediator here. And then others have asked adolescents in juvenile detention to write about their dreams and notice that many of them are dreaming about money and possessions, and yet they're released from detention with few skills to achieve these. And, and so well, how do you get money and possessions if you don't have a sort of employable skills increases the likelihood of reoffending. And yeah. so I think, yeah, there are really profound links there between the inequalities that we need to see in our society as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that has to do with the fact that if you don't have all the same things other kids have, of course, that can be quite confrontational as well. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, the discrepancy, the perceived discrepancy is also big and makes kids more materialistic because they want to achieve that same goal. And it oftentimes also has to do with the parents who really want to do well for their children. So they particularly want their children to do better and to fit in and to make sure they have all the right things. So that's another thing. And what we, for instance, also see, so I've actually also done uh, research myself on this together with a colleague, uh, Agnes Nairn. And we've actually looked at these groups as well. So this, this work is still to be published. But we, for instance, saw as well a difference in, for instance, advertising exposure. So uh, kids from less affluent families, they are not necessarily more susceptible to advertising, but they are exposed to a greater deal because they watch more media to begin with. So they are watching more television. They're using the computer more uh, because sometimes they're home alone and, and that's yeah, the, the thing they turn to, or when the affluent kids are going to all their different sports clubs, for instance, mm -hmm. if your parents can't afford that, then what do you do? You sit at home and you try to entertain yourself there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that really counters the sort of more common narrative of, you know, it's, it's the poor children who don't know what to think about these things and need to be protected. And <laughs> yeah, so it speaks much more to the inequality than any kind of other discrepancy that uh, might commonly sort of be floated around. And just as we sort of move towards the idea of potentially reducing materialism, you would introduce me to the idea of post-materialism. And yeah. so I went and found a paper. It was a super interesting paper from 1971 uh, on, and it was sort of this guy, Inglehart, who I think was one of the earliest researchers on it. And I was vastly amused to see his analysis. So he, he had this table in one of his papers, and it was about Britain's declining relative economic position in the last century, which of course hits close to home for me. <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) And so from 1900 to 1940, the US and Britain had the highest gross national product per capita, US first and Britain second. By 1950, Sweden's number two. By 1970, the US is still number one, but eight other European countries are outranking Britain. And then he goes on to describe his research that shows that the youngest cohort in each of these countries is uh, more likely to endorse values that are post-materialistic and so, you know, non-acquisitive. And that the percentage of people who have post-materialist values are highest in the countries with the highest gross national product per capita. And then I'm thinking, but that itself is a measure of how much people are buying. So how can we say that the people in these countries hold more post-materialist values if we're also seeing them buying more stuff because the GNP is going up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there's many things uh, to make of this, and I'm not sure what the explanation is. (laughs) But if I think of it, yeah, several things come to mind. So one thing could be, I I don't think that's it, but it could be it, that it's sort of a rebellion against the status quo. So we do see that in societies where there's high level of uh, materialism and consumerism, where people will rebel against it so that they sort of feel like, but this is not what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Another thing could be is that it's simply a a false, yeah, I never know how to pronounce that word, but like, (laughs) it's not necessarily one or the other. Uh, So you could imagine that, yes, you want to buy things, but you also, yeah, are cherishing other values as well, which are more uh, post-materialistic. So Mm -hmm. actually the example you gave of uh, parents and how you can express that you really value family, like, I think that's an example of it. So in in a materialistic point of view, you could emphasize that by spending a lot of money on your kids and on your home and on presents for each other, etc. But if you take a more post-materialistic approach, then it's more about the nurturing and spending time together, for instance, that you actually place that first. So even though then you're still in this capitalistic society where a lot of spending is going on, you as an individual can still make a different choice as well. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also a difference between uh, really materialism simply because you want to own more things and because you really want to signal your status or because, and this is still part of materialism as well, because you just really cherish those possessions you have. So yes, you're spending a lot of money and buying expensive things, but you do cherish them and the things they provide for you. And so you're maybe spending your money in different ways as well, but it's, yeah, I think that could be something uh, to do with it as well, that you're appreciative um, more of the things that you have and also the fact that having money also can enable you to spend more time with your family, for instance. Mm -hmm. That's part of it as well. So maybe I'm getting a bit off track, but what we're going to see in the Netherlands, (laughs) just to wind it up, is that we have, of course, more dual incomes. So where both the father and mother or, or both parents are working. And so this is often seen as something uh, which is characteristics of uh, capitalist society as well. Uh, but because they are both working, they can also sacrifice a little bit of their income. So both, this is popular in the Netherlands for, for both mothers, but also fathers to say, instead of working five days per week, I'm going to work four days a week or three so that I can actually be home with my child. And so for mothers, it might mean that they are home less than they used to be two decades ago. But actually for the fathers, it means that they're home more often. Mm. And that's also a sign of post-materialism where they actually value that more than creating the additional income. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so as we wrap up here, a lot of researchers have proposed a lot of ideas about how we could potentially reduce materialism. And so if we sort of take the premise that materialism is something that we want to (laughs) reduce, what are some of the things that you think might be more effective than others? I know taxes are one that's commonly talked about. If you tax things more, then people won't be able to buy as much. But then sort of a counter argument to that is people seem to feel as though, well, if I can afford it, I'm going to buy it. And then I sort of have this moral license to engage in this behavior because I paid for the privilege. And so there can be so many unintended consequences with a lot of these (laughs) ideas and policies. So maybe can you walk us through some of the ones that you think might be most successful? 
yeah, most people don't like their governments to tell them what to do and to pay mm-hmm. more taxes. <laughs> but what we do see, so for me, it also has to do with the fact, so so Kasser is the one who talks about that uh, capitalistic societies are more materialistic and that the more materialistic they are, the less emphasis there is on the common goal. Uh, but also what we see on then a more individual level is that individuals sort of, again, put the ambition and the success and wealth first over the connections uh, with others and taking care yeah, and just doing other stuff that can provide happiness as well. And he says that basically, if you want to reduce materialism, you need to make sure that uh, those human connections and those other values such as generosity, uh, that they are amplified. And so I think what would work best if well, at least in young kids, to, to invest in their uh, self-esteem a little bit as well, also for adolescents. But I think also teaching young people to be grateful, to be grateful ourselves as well for all the things that we have and really just focus on making those connections. And the tricky thing is that sometimes possessions enable these connections. But I think if we have more focused on what's intrinsic to us, what makes us happy, outside of possessions that then basically the emphasis will shift. Okay. All right. So that's super helpful overview. And I want to look specifically at maybe sort of giving things and giving money and things like charitable giving. It's pretty common now when you give money to some kind of cause online that you can have your name attached to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and so everybody can see how much you gave. And of course, I'm sure the idea is to pressure you into giving more. Uh, but it, there's sort of a status thing there, isn't it? And so that, to me, it almost seems as though that's increasing materialistic values, even though I'm giving something away rather than buying something. Yeah, it's a new way to display your wealth. Mm-hmm. Because apparently you don't need the money as much. Like you can give it away. You have so much of it that that's mm. fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then on gifts, <laughs> <laughs> I struggle with this so much, particularly at Christmas, uh, because listeners know I'm I'm an atheist, but somehow we somehow we still celebrate Christmas in our family. And my five year old has requested that next year she only receive candy and money for Christmas, so that she can buy more candy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so there was this awesome study that I read that analyzed children's letters written to Santa and it defined a gift as, I'll quote, any provision of good or service without guarantee of return with a view to creating, nourishing or recreating social bonds between people. And so I'm thinking, okay, why do we need gifts to nourish social bonds? And then secondly, are Christmas gifts really an example of social bonding? Because the letters that were studied in that research were talking about, you know, oh, I've been so good this year and I really deserve whatever toy it is that I'm asking you to give me. And so it seems so transactional and not related to social bonds at all. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, first of all, uh, presents can have, like, can create or signal social bonds between people. And so sometimes you will see that people will go out of their way to find the perfect gift to uh, demonstrate their love, so Mm -hmm. to say. So in those cases, they, they can be used to signal, like, the strength of a friendship, for instance, or a family connection or a love connection. And so the potential is there. But then again, it depends on the way that the gift is actually presented. So the kind of gift it is, but also the message it is presented with. So Christmas gifts have the potential (laughs) to nourish uh, social bonds. But if it's indeed just like a a wish list and a generic uh, explanation of why they deserve this, then the potential is less there, I would say. But then still, yeah. Then if you think of all those retrospective studies of people as parents or adults looking back on their childhoods, they will recall getting certain things for Christmas as well. Mm -hmm. But what's to take from that kind of research, I think, as well, is that if people look back, they might not always mention the most expensive toy. Mm. So sometimes uh, the things children are happy with the most are the thing least expected and that certainly didn't cost the most money. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm thinking about the collections of cardboard boxes and empty yogurt containers that have been keeping my daughter engaged for weeks. (laughs) Yeah. And and what about, you had mentioned sort of teaching values and, and I'm just thinking about some of the research that's talked about things like gratitude journals and encouraging people to reflect on their values and mindfulness and, and those kinds of things. Do you see a lot of value in those? 
Yeah, to some extent. So okay. I, I think these kind of methods work, at least if you look for, for adults, and probably the same thing goes uh, for kids, especially if you talk about keeping a daily journal. Like at one point I did a study asking kids to mark in a television guide every program they've seen. They will do a tremendous job on day one and two, but like <laughs> after a couple of days, they sort of lose focus. Mm -hmm. And I think when you run the same risk with a gratitude journal, so if you want to reinforce this, uh, then maybe it should be a dinner table conversation instead mm, yeah. uh, to, to ensure that it's happening. Uh, but there's definitely potential, yes. Mm. Okay, so the basic thing we want to leave with here is there is hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most certainly so. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your voluminous research with us. <laughs> well, you're welcome. So listeners can find all of the references, and there are many for today's episode and other things that we've discussed as well at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash materialism. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. And join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.